0: Well then let's uh, turn to the book of Exodus again then. and chapter 7 and we'll read at verse 3 Exodus 7 at verse 3 where God says and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt, and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt. And bring out the children of Israel from among them. So God will bring his people out of Egypt, as he says himself, by great judgments. Now, as I said before the reading, it's sometimes since uh, we were in the book of Exodus. And last time we left it with Moses and Aaron at last appearing... For the first time before Pharaoh, and surprisingly, instead of things getting better, uh, things got worse, and Pharaoh increased the bondage of the children of Israel, which of course made Israel angry against Moses and Aaron. And uh, it sometimes happens, as I highlighted at the time, when you do the Lord's work, that Very often things do appear to go low before they grow. But Moses did the right thing and he took his burden to the Lord in prayer and the Lord encouraged him in response to his prayer, which is again the way things work. And so a second time, Moses and Aaron go back before ill, before fail. And that appearance before Theo sets in motion this series of miraculous events which uh, culminate in the great event of the exodus itself, which of course gives the book its name. The exodus of the people of God out of bondage and misery, through the Red Sea, and at last, after wandering into the promised land that God had promised them. And until now, really, until chapter 7, there's a sense in which the book has been preparing us for that. It's been explaining why the people of God have been in bondage. The sin that took them there and how they lost the presence and the blessing of God. And as well as describing the church's need of deliverance, it's also described Moses' preparation to be their deliverer. That has been equally to the fore. But from chapter 7 right through to chapter 12 we have what you could say are the events of the Exodus themselves. Now that narrative, 7 to 12, and the events these chapters contain are dominated, you could say, by two great themes and they're no surprise. First is the judgment of God and the second is the Mercy or salvation of God. And whenever God performs a mighty work you always find these two together anyway. You find his judgment upon his enemies and salvation and deliverance for his people. That goes right through until you come to the cross itself which is God's greatest act of both judgment and and salvation. On the cross, Christ slew principalities and powers and judged the prince of this world. And by the same act, he delivers his own people, past, present and future, from all their bondage to sin and misery. So that greatest act of all, the cross, is salvation and judgment. Now, this particular act in the Old Testament is the uh, great foreshadowing of the events of the cross. I mean, if you read your Bible carefully, you'll notice that there are constant references to the exodus and the deliverance of God's people as the historical time of what Christ accomplishes on the cross. Now, there are other types and symbols too in the sacrifices in the tabernacle and so on and in other events too there are foreshadowings of what God will accomplish in Christ on the cross but this one is the historical type, it gives us a full picture of what God does to his enemies and what God does to his people both are there together very plain, Judgment. Mingled with mercy. And for the next few weeks, as God helps us, we will look at these. The judgment, of course, I hardly need to say, is on unbelieving Egypt. And it comes in the form of a succession of plagues which culminate in the destruction of Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. And of course, we see God's mercy on believing Israel. His judgment on unbelieving Egypt his mercy on believing Israel. And we see that mercy in the provision of a Passover. Without that they would have perished with the rest. But through the provision of the Passover which itself culminates in their passage through the Red Sea, a safe passage through and eventually their access into the promised land. Oh, there's a way in which our souls want to hurry quickly to the Passover and uh, to look at that marvellous type of our Lord Jesus Christ in his sufferings and in his death on our behalf. Our souls uh, want to get there quickly. But we really need to begin with the judgment. It's through the judgment that we experience the mercy after all. So the judgment comes upon Egypt in the form of these plagues. Now, most of us, if we have either been Christians from our youth or brought up in Christian homes, we will be reasonably familiar with the plagues. Some of you might remember many of them, maybe even all of them. They begin with the pollution of the waters of the Nile, and they move from that to the multiplication of the lower forms of life. Frogs, lice, and flies. Moving from that to disease that affects livestock alone. Then to boils which break out on animals and people. And then a plague of locusts and hail. And finally, there is a three day period of darkness, of thick darkness. And last of all, the death of the firstborn. Now, when you read these plagues, they have the appearance of randomness, that there's perhaps no particular order to them, or that they seem kind of arbitrary in the selection of things to afflict with. Now, that's not the case. I won't go into exactly uh, what particular plague is chosen and why today, but I will, God willing, next Lord's Day. But for the moment, let's just recognize that they're far from random. There is an order to the judgment of God. There always is. Now, at various points, I probably will refer to various plagues. But I think it's best to look at them collectively. I mean, if we try to go through them one by one, there's so easily going to be a lot of of repetition. And I don't think they're meant to be looked at like that. I think they're meant to be taken together as a comprehensive work of judgment that the Lord is unleashing upon the land of Egypt. So God willing, we'll begin looking at them today and conclude, perhaps next Lord's Day or God willing, uh, the week following. Now again, just as you know the plagues pretty well, you probably know their leading features well. Moses begins by asking permission to allow Israel to take a three-day journey into the wilderness to worship God. Now many people have wondered, and in fairness, I suppose to some extent we all do, why Moses makes that particular form of request. He doesn't ask for immediate release from bondage. He begins with a request for a three-day journey into the wilderness to enable Israel to worship God as a people collectively. In other words, you could describe it almost as a a request for some aspect of freedom of public religion. That's something that we still enjoy, obviously, in this land. For however long, I don't know not at all confident that it will remain, at least in the form in which we know it. And certainly they lost it long ago. But here's an assertion to their right and their duty and their privilege to worship God uh, in public in the way in which they are entitled to do so. Of course, each time Pharaoh refuses, and the pattern is the same. God, therefore, sends a plague. Pharaoh promises to relent. And then when God withdraws the plague, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Sometimes we're told it's God that hardens his heart. I'll come to that later when we think especially about Pharaoh himself because really God's dealings with Pharaoh need special treatment on their own. But in any case... Pharaoh hardens his heart, or God hardens it, whichever way we wish to look at it, and therefore the people of God stay in their bondage. And that pattern continues until the tenth, and finally the death of the firstborn. Now in looking at the plagues, I think the, the best or most obvious way to begin this is just by asking why exactly did God of course, the Bible tells us that they are a judgment. And we know, I hope, that God judges individuals. Uh, he judges you in your providential circumstances. He judges you in lots of ways, by the state of your soul at any given time. He judges families. He deals with families in judgment. He also deals with nations in judgments. He exalts Nations that keep and preserve his ways, he judges nations that move away from his ways according to the life that they've had, according to the use that they make of it. God judges nations. He has, he is doing, and he always will. Now, the judgment that he pours out on Egypt here is obviously not the final judgment upon Egypt as a nation because Egypt remains as a nation, and it still does. And the word of God in its prophecies, although very often it speaks very negatively of Egypt, there's, there's a wonderful pro, uh, promise in the prophecy of Isaiah concerning future days, that there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrian will come to Egypt, the Egypt into Assyria. In that day Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, and there will be a blessing in the midst of the land. Blessed is Egypt, my people. Blessed is Assyria, the work of my hands. And blessed is Israel, my inheritance. Now that's that's quite a stunning prophecy, really. Quite a marvellous prophecy. Elsewhere Isaiah speaks of a day in which an altar to God shall be built in, in, uh, in Egypt, but but these words are even more full than that. Uh, the, both Israel, sorry, The three, Israel, Egypt and Assyria, will be full of God's blessing and these nations will be the work of his hands. So it's not a final judgment. But there's no doubt that it's a devastating judgment. It's not just that their economy was brought extremely low, but the health of the people was affected and last of all, one person, the firstborn in every single family throughout Egypt, died in one night. It's hard for us to imagine the devastation involved in that kind of thing. I mean, suppose in Stornoway itself, just this town, if if every household woke up in the morning and the firstborn in every single household was dead. You, you can imagine the shock and the devastation. It's no wonder, as God said that. Pharaoh would move from a position of not letting these people, these money makers, go at any price. He would move from that to driving them out with his own strong hand. But these were God's judgments on Egypt. The question is, why? I know they do function as a kind of type in which the way God progressively judges the world. And a reminder to us at last that that he will judge the world without mercy and without restraint. But that's not what's actually happening here. We have to go back and ask, why does he intervene in Egypt's life at this particular point in time, and in this particular way? Why is Egypt judged? Now, that's a good question, because for many people, Egypt was, and still is, a positive place to be celebrated. Not a, a negative place to be judged and condemned. I mean for for many people uh, there's an admiration for Egyptian culture and civilization. And to this day people are amazed, and increasingly so in, in very recent years, amazed at how advanced Egypt as a civilization was, long before other nations. Maths, astronomy engineering, agriculture and even medicine. People are increasingly amazed at the medicinal skills that were in Egypt long, long ago. But the way people see these things is not the way God sees these things. God doesn't judge a culture and a people according to their advancements in knowledge or in engineering or any of these things. I mean, we think or people think that God is impressed with these things, or that God should be impressed with these things, as people are impressed with these things. God isn't impressed with gifts and talents. God's the author of gifts and talents. I mean, who can he be impressed with them? God is concerned with what people do with them. That. That's true of yourself. He has gifted you and given you talents. See, sees fit. None of these are to be gloried in by you. They're to be used, whatever they are, for His glory alone, for the good of His people and for the well being of others too. That's what concerns the Lord. I mean, it's astonishing the way people glory in men and women too, and in their achievements. People are in awe at the latest discoveries or the latest creations or the latest tech or gadgets. God made the universe, and he sustains it in being by the word of his power. Do you think he's impressed by computer technology? Really? These things are impressive to us, but they're not impressive to God. The architect of the universe is not awed by our puny achievements. Like I said, it's what we do with them. And what does God require of us to do with them? Well, he wants us with all of mind and heart and soul and strength to love and serve the Lord, our God, and our neighbor as ourselves. That, that's what he wants us to do. With all our gifts and talents, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, that was the chief end of every Egyptian here too, three and a half thousand years ago. Just as it is the chief end of your soul today in 2022. Nothing changes. The basic things in human life remain the same. The basic things in connection with our condition remain the same. The basic things in connection with our relationship to our Creator remain the same. There has always been the problem of sin, the need for reconciliation with God the need for deliverance from hell, the need for rescue into heaven. These things remain the same. Nothing changes. As Solomon noted so long ago in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. The same patterns in human behavior just keep repeating themselves. And the same need is always there. The same answer to be found in God. And there are times when human sin reaches a kind of um, what I was going to say a peak, I should really, or a zenith, I should really say an idea when it, when it goes down so low that God needs to intervene. He intervenes for His glory's sake, to remind people of who He is and to remind us of who we are, you, who you are, yourself. So that takes us to Egypt. And there are four reasons for God's judgement the first one fundamentally is sin now sin carries over into the fore, but just fundamentally it's sin and the reason I'm emphasising it as, as one distinctive reason is because it is eventually the reason why we're all judged anyway it's because of our breach of God's commandments that we are all judged sin is an objective thing there's a sense in which we can speak of it, of course, as a spiritual thing, a condition that we have, but it reveals itself in very practical ways. What is sin? Any want of conformity unto or any transgression of the law of God. In other words, any <clears throat> any lack of conformity to what God requires, or any willful, deliberate transgression of what God requires, that's sin. Sin brings judgment. Judgment brings hell. And that, friends, is that. And that is the condition, certainly, that we are born with since the fall. We are born in iniquity. We possess natures, not natures that can become sinful by bad examples, but natures that are already sinful. And as we draw breath and as we live in this world, that sinful <coughs> nature just reveals itself. We need deliverance. We need salvation. And of course, Egypt. Egyptians are just like that. At the end of the day, that's what we're all going to be judged on, our sin. And unless you have a saviour, hell is your destiny, and mine too. But there are particular aggravations to Egyptian sin. And the first is one that I'm not going to go into so much today, I'd rather leave it to the next course day, but it's idolatry. Egyptian civilization at this time was by far the most advanced and refined or degraded, if you like, and ungodly system of nature worship. Now, idolatry is essentially nature worship. There are ways of dressing it up and disguising it, but that's what it is. I'm very conscious that our own society is increasingly moving towards paganism, and the worship of the earth, um, the worship of the environment. I saw an interview with someone who was spending ten minutes on the television telling us how we should cultivate our relationship with trees, and uh, hug them closely for five to ten minutes every day, and start communicating with them, and I thought to myself, Well, well, if there was a time not long ago when we thought um, how stupid people were to be pagans, we can now well and truly realise that pagans are not necessarily stupid as you might think they were, um, but here they are. I mean, here they are. The worship of the earth, the, the worship of the land, the worship of nature, the worship of animals... There are now people advocating that the legal system should be dealing with the same with animals as it does with people. And of course, <coughs> the way in which um, man himself, male and female, in the image of God is being degraded, degraded to the level of the beast is obvious. The beast is also being elevated to the level of a man. I'm not sure which is brought down or which is brought up, but they're certainly being equalized. The worship of the sun or the moon or the stars. It's interesting that very often the word, the word Cosmos is written with a capital C. Why is Cosmos written with a capital C? It's quite a strange phenomenon that. That, that apparently goes back to Carl Sagan who, who encouraged people to stand in awe at the Cosmos. Now why should you be in awe at the Cosmos? As far as I understand it Awe relates to persons, uh, not just to things. And the, if, if the whole thing is just here, how can you be in awe at it? I can understand you certainly being in awe at something that has been produced by a mind and by a person, but not at just a thing. So a capital C goes before cosmos. The worship of nature. The Egyptian worship of nature was very elaborate. Frogs played a role in it. Flies played a role in it. Beetles or lice played a role in it. Darkness and light played a role in it. Which of course, as we'll see next week, leads us to the various plagues. But idolatry increases the wrath of God. Of course, it's inherent in idolatry that the worship that should go to the creator goes to the creature. But sometimes it's so overt. That God just has to say, I'm stopping this. Things can be overt in an individual's life and God says, I'm taking this individual away. I'm remo- removing this man or woman of sin and of blasphemy. I'm intervening and I'm taking them away. And sometimes God intervenes with nations too and says, this is enough of this. And the idolatry had ripened, become so degraded that God says, I am intervening. And in our particular nation that's a real cause for alarm. That brings me to the next thing, which is this. Not only were the Egyptians sinning and moving into severe and coarse idolatry, but they were sinning against light. Sinning against privilege and against opportunity and against teaching. Now again we all do to some extent. We all do. There would be no sin unless we had knowledge. But the Bible teaches that wherever we are in the world and whoever we are, we have light. As Paul says in the Acts of the Apostles, that God has not left himself without witness anywhere. Even in the sun and the moon and the stars. They don't teach idolatry to you. They teach the creatorhood of God. God's signature is written on the sun and the moon and the stars. But of course, too, his signature is written on your own soul and in your own heart. Paul tells the Romans that the Gentiles who never had God's law to the extent and in the way in which Israel had it, nonetheless had the law of God written in their hearts. Accusing them or excusing them, telling them what was right and telling them what was wrong. It's written in the very fabric of our beings that there is one true and living God and we should recognize him, that we should worship him according to the way in which he shows, that we take his name with reverence and so on. The same is true with the second table of the law, that we honor father and mother, that we respect human life, that we respect human sexuality as it's functioning within knowledge, that we respect property, that we respect truth and do not covet. These things are written on the heart, as is the need to consecrate time to the Lord for his worship, private and public. These things are written on the heart. So nobody sins without light. But the point is that God's judgment will be on the basis of the light we receive. And sometimes when we aggravate God by sinning against great light, he is provoked to judge. We provoke God, and God can be provoked. The Bible is very plain in that. Now, God saw Egypt's deterioration. And God is gracious. And God sent them Joseph. Joseph's arrival in Egypt, by the way, is also Joseph's departure from the land of Canaan. These two things do go together. Sometimes when God blesses one, he is cursing another. When he sends a light to one place, he is removing a light from another. These things are always to be remembered, but God sent them Joseph. And... We talk about killing two birds with one stone. God kills flocks of birds with one stone. He has a whole host of things to accomplish in the life of Joseph personally, in the life of Joseph's family, but he is also accomplishing something in Egypt. God has a strange way of bringing this nobody from Canaan to a place of great prominence in Egypt. And not only that, but God so works it that Joseph's entire family comes down into Egypt. The holy family, the chosen family that God had brought from Ur of the Chaldees into the promised land, lo and behold, God brings them out of the promised land and into the land of Egypt. If you are a student of biblical history, that's a surprise. That's a surprise. But God does it in mercy to Egypt as well as in judgment upon Egypt. Canaan Egypt's Canaan was Canaan's loss the fact of the matter is that Canaan had had the holy family since the days of Egypt and all the days of Isaac and all the days of Jacob until Jacob was now a very old man and what did Canaan do with it? nothing nothing And when we do nothing with the light that God shines into our lives, do you think God is obligated to keep shining that light? Do you not think a time comes when God says, well, I'll take the kingdom from you and I'll give it to someone else. I'll take the light from here and I'll shine it elsewhere. We have enjoyed in these lands ourselves the light of God for a long, long time. Can anyone deny that it's not going out? I hope and pray that it doesn't go out, but it's going out. The same can happen in your own soul. The light and the strivings and the words of God can just move and they're on to someone else. So God is merciful in sending these people of God into Egypt. Merciful to Egypt. Uh, Maybe God has taken people into your life recently too. That's a mercy is there a Christian in your life who wasn't there before a Christian family that you're dealing with that you weren't dealing with before God is kind in that God is gracious in that he's increasing the light but but what do you do with it what do you do with it at first interestingly it had a profound effect it even had a profound effect on Pharaoh himself in fact, I, I would argue, I'd be prepared to argue that there are signs that the Pharaoh that Joseph is dealing with is probably a converted man. That God deals with the, the king of Egypt in such a way as to bring him to a knowledge of himself. But there's no denying that as the years pass, Egypt rejects that light. They kept God's people isolated in the land of Goshen, didn't allow God's people to affect the life and worship of Egypt. Um, Christians are okay in their little box and in their little corner. And that's very much how the country is increasingly dealing with Christianity. It's got to be your private thing. Don't bring it to work with you. Don't bring it into the institutions of law or education or anywhere. Keep it in your own house and it's okay. Of course, the situation finally arrived in Egypt where... They put the people of God in slavery, but even then they were economically useful. And nations will still find Christians somehow to be economically useful, because by and large they're honest, should be, they have integrity, they are hard workers, should be, not shirkers. So they'll be useful, but useful in their place, as long as they keep themselves and their God in a corner. And that's how Israel was dealt with by Egypt, or that so, Egypt dealt with Israel. They got the light, but they didn't want the light. They didn't want the light. And finally, they did what they just should not do. Just as you need to be careful, that you never do, and that is, they began to persecute actively the people of God. So one thing is supposed to silence them, or to put them in a box, or shut them off in a corner. It's another thing to hunt and to harass, to fault find their words, to lock up their persons, and to put them to labour. They turn against them. The psalm puts it strangely that God turned their hearts. That's a little bit like God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening his own. Sometimes we have to trace things all the way back and say that God appointed this that's basically what it's saying God ordained that this be so that's God's way of saying I'm, I'm backing off Egypt now I am leaving Egypt and Egypt's heart will turn against my people because I'm not restraining them anymore I'm not going to keep them back anymore I'm going to let them do what is in their own heart against my people even though that will bring my wrath Upon them. And that's exactly what happens because Israel enslaves them. Hundreds of thousands of people brought into forced servitude in Egypt. It's a form of kidnap and great evil. It's an interesting thing that Africa has been sinned against greatly in this regard for a few hundred years in the modern era. But Africa also sinned long before she was sinned against. And some of the most widespread and cruel slavery on the face of the earth took place in Africa itself. Where African people are constantly enslaving each other and selling each other off. Even the Africans that were herded like cattle into boats and taken across the sea and into America by their millions were sold by fellow Africans willingly and cheerfully because they had been used to that practice for millennia. People act as though slavery was only ever done by a few European countries. That's a word of nonsense. And here you find an African country, Egypt just enslaving the people of God in their hundreds of thousands. And God sees these things God sees these things. And what matters most, I I am not saying that um, other forms of slavery are not to be considered evil or the enslavement of other people not to be considered evil. That this kind of slavery is always evil. But it's against the people of God. And the word of God tells us that the people of God are the apple of his own eye. They shall be my jewels. They shall be mine in the day in which I make up my jewels, says the Lord. They are all precious to himself, every single one of them. And to lay your hand on them is worse in the sight of God than to lay your hand upon anybody else. No, in our self righteousness we can recoil from that and say Are you saying that somebody else is more important than me? Well <laughs> God forbid in our day that anyone should be more important than me, myself and I, the unholy trinity but that is exactly what the Bible says. that there is a particular value and preciousness to his own people and hence to harm his own people is a particular evil in the sight of God. Think about that when you lay your hand upon a Christian fellow man or woman. Think about that when you speak against a Christian. Think about that when you're doing down a church. Think about that when you are blaspheming uh, by taking a person whom God loves and just openly exposing them to ridicule and inviting other people to ridicule them. Think about that. That nothing in your life at that point is as obnoxious to God as what you're doing with his own child. Nothing at all. There are so many passages of scripture that remind us of that. Put it simply, God considers an evil done to his people as a personal evil against himself. God considers an evil done to his child as a personal evil done against himself. You'll remember when Saul of Tarsus was persecuting the Christian church, trying to destroy it in its very infancy. Christ appeared to him in glory on the Damascus Road. It's a famous encounter that you will own to some degree or another. But Jesus suddenly said to Saul, 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 why dost thou persecute me? Not my people, not my church, but me. Why does the Lord put it like that? Because he considers his people himself. They are the members of his body, he is the head. They are the feet and the arms. They are himself and he is them. Saul, you are persecuting me. And again, Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 25 that when the great day of judgment arises, it will be a judgment based on works. What we have done in this life and whether our works conform to the profession that we give. Did did we visit the sick? Did we show mercy to those who were in prison? Did we feed the hungry when they were the people of God in those situations, the people of God? It's not a general... um, it's, It's not referring to our general goodness and benevolence to people generally, which is in itself important. What Christ is talking about is our treatment of Christian people in their need, in their hunger, when they are imprisoned for righteousness sake. Did you feed? Did you visit? Did you pray? Did you care? Well, as much, he says, as you did, these things, to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. I take an insult to them as an insult to me, and I take a kindness to them as a kindness to me. Oh, friends, how wonderful and glorious a person a Christian actually is, and how vital that that we treat them with respect. And when we turn against the Lord's cause or against the Lord's people, don't be surprised if God's judgment starts to break into our life as individuals, as a family, as a nation. God will start to show his displeasure. And of course it's interesting that while Egypt dealt well with God's people, God dealt well with Egypt. Is that not right? There was a severe famine in that part of the land. Joseph comes to the fore, gives Pharaoh advice on taxation, uh, how to tax the produce of the earth. The result was that not only was Egypt preserved through the famine, but became effectively the breadbasket of the Middle East and beyond. Pharaoh's own power was increased, all because Joseph was at his right hand, and all because he had been kind to Joseph. You will be good to the Lord's cause, and the Lord will be good to you. God prospered then, but immediately, well not immediately, but when they turned the other way, well, God turned the other way. He turned his hand against sin, idolatry, rejecting the light, persecution of God's people. It's the trajectory our own country is in. And therefore, God sends the plagues. Now, my time has gone, but I want to say just very quickly uh, a couple of introductory things about the plague. This will only take five minutes. If I say five minutes or so, it won't take much longer than five minutes. First of all, I want you to notice that the judgments that God sends are a perfect judgment. There are ten of them. In a way, you would expect seven, fullness and completion. But you actually have ten, which means it's a perfect judgment. There's nothing unjust in them, nothing unholy, God is just in all his ways and holy in all his works. Each one. Maybe in our eyes they might look to be severe, unjust, sinful. That's our eyes. What's the problem with our eyes? They're sinful eyes. We judge nothing properly. We haven't a clue about what sin is or how evil sin is. We haven't really a clue about how holy God is. Not a clue. The problem is we see nothing right. It's not up to us to sit down and say, oh, well, I don't know if God's just here or if God's righteous here. No, you don't sit on top of the Bible. The Bible judges you and it judges me. Simple as that. The ten judgments remind us that they are all holy and perfect judgments from the hand of God in their nature, in their severity, in their timing. Everything about them is perfect just like his handling on you and his handling on me. There is nothing wrong with it. Never, whether you are a Christian or not, every affliction, every hardship, there's not a note of injustice or severity in it. It's perfect. The second thing you'll notice is that these judgments are measured out. There's a progression in them. They begin with the earth, the pollution of the water supply, they move, like I said, to the lower forms of life, the frogs, the lice, and the flies. These things are still irritating. They're inconveniences. I mean, they're, they're very substantial inconveniences to be finding frogs and flies everywhere, but that's all they are. Just irritances and inconveniences. Then if I move to the livestock, the livestock is deceased, and that's an economic blow, because we're told that all the Livestock, the particular form of um, beast that constitutes livestock, are all cut down by this pestilence, and of course, so it moves on to the darkness where everything stops. Three days that the whole of society just grinds to a complete halt, and finally, human life is directly affected. There's a reminder there that God's judgments are always cumulative in our lives. They're always cumulative. Take yourself as a Christian today. if, if, If you wander away from God there's that wonderful passage in Hosea chapter 5 where God sees Israel falling away from himself and says to her first, I'll be like a moth to you and then he says I'll be like a lion to you. The moth just nibbles away the lion, of course, tears you to bits. No, God doesn't come straight away as a lion. He never does. He comes as a moth. He'll, he'll walk away at you. He'll, he'll nibble away. Very often at your possessions. You know what a moth does? He, he goes into it goes into your into your wardrobes and starts nibbling away your your, uh, your possessions and your clothing. He starts to nibble away your life. But it's God maybe you don't think that God ever intervenes except by big huge things like Elijah asked for, like fire and a quake and things like that but God has ways of communicating quietly if we don't listen he comes like a lion to devour these judgments were cumulative. God's saying to Pharaoh, listen he's saying to Egypt, listen, watch and learn and respond because that of course is what the cumulative nature of these plagues are doing they are actually, they're calls to repentance. Although I'm speaking of them as judgment in opposition to mercy, let's not forget that there's mercy in these, in these plagues. When God visits us with a judgment, unless it's the final judgment, there's mercy in it. There's a call to repentance in it. And there are three plagues the, the third plague in each cycle of three comes without a warning the first two in each cycle of three Moses actually announces that something's happening the third just happens and, and that's God's way of saying that he's not always going to announce these things, That there is going to be a final cataclysmic judgment which will come without announcement and without warning if we don't respond to it properly But these plagues have probably spaced out and they're certainly accumulated because God is giving space to repent. If any will call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Move from nuisance to economic destruction to life. In fact, God said at one point when He was putting in the hail that He would have. He could have easily brought the pestilence on them but he did not. And all the time God is simply saying that he is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And if God is interfering in your own life in some kind of way that speaks judgment I pray that you will hear not just the, the call of judgment or the voice of judgment But the call of God to be reconciled to himself O Lord of God grant us the wisdom to discern your voice to hear you speaking to the nation and indeed to ourselves reminding us that we have no continuing city here that we might seek one to come. You make a difference between those who are yours and those who are not. And how vast that difference is, even if it's minimised or sometimes forgotten in this life. Bless our deliberation upon your word, we pray, in the Saviour's name. Amen. Let's close by singing in Psalm 11. verse 3. If the foundations be destroyed, what have the righteous done? That can be translated what can the righteous do? God in his holy temple is in heaven is his His eyes do see his eyelids try men's sons. That's an unusual expression. I think uh, there's a Jewish explanation of that, which I think through that when, when you're really peering into something, your eyelids go together. It's as though the Lord is really penetrating into the hearts of men. The just, he proves, but his soul hates the wicked man and him that violence loves. Then goes on to describe God's judgment upon the unjust, and it closes with his delight on those who love righteousness verse 3 to 7 let's start to sing uh one and we're
1: strong and quarter right